all years. And we realize that we're not quite as active, not quite as strong as what we once were. And we come to realize that there is something beyond this fall. There is a winter. And when we look just by eyesight, it looks like all is lost. It appears that things are dead, but we know that really winter is only a time that things are dormant. We know just after winter comes the most beautiful season of all. When everything comes back to life again and and the green is more lush than what it ever was in the summer and the growth is more rapid than what it ever was in the summer, it's the most liveliest season of all. And so it is in that the Lord has showed us our life on this earth, the winter when it ends. And there's no reason to dread the other side. It by far is the best season that is to come. It's when we'll be renewed and we will never enter into another summer or fall again. It will always be lively, incorruptible, immortal. It will be the greatest blessing that we could ever imagine. If God chooses to use words to describe the resurrection... We surely would have to open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, where we could easily break down at least eight major categories that God wants us to know about the resurrection. First, He wants us to know the evidences of the resurrection. When we read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 and 2, we read in verse 1 and 2 about the evidence of the church. In other words, the church bears witness to the fact that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also, what did the church do? You received. And where do you stand? In which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Brethren, if we're part of the Lord's church, the Lord's church realize that they are saved by the resurrected Lord. We realize that we hold to the resurrected Lord. We realize that we stand upon the doctrine and upon the, the ground of the resurrected Lord. If there's anybody on this earth that believes in the resurrected Lord, it's His church. But it's not only His church that gives evidence, but it's also the Old Testament Scriptures. Look in verse 3 and 4. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures there. And that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Scriptures like Psalm 22 tells us about the crucifixion or the execution that Jesus is going to go through. Isaiah 53 does also. Psalm, the 16th chapter, tells us about the resurrection in the sense that it tells us that our Lord's bones would not go into corruption. In other words, they'll go into the grave, but they will not grow corrupt. In other words, they're going to be resurrected before that time of natural corruption. You see... It's like we read this morning in Luke the 24th chapter. Jesus spoke very sternly to those two men on the road to Emmaus saying that if you would have read what Moses said and what the psalmist said and what the prophet said, we all would know about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Listen, if somebody says, I just don't know how we can know, 
The church can tell them about the resurrected Lord. The scriptures, Old and New Testament, can tell of the resurrected Lord. And then also, there were eyewitnesses that could tell of the resurrected Lord. This was just a few years after the Lord is resurrected. And notice beginning at verse 5. There was seen by, who were the witnesses? Cephas or Peter, the twelve, also over 500 brethren at once. And the greater portion of them are still alive. In other words, over 250 of these individuals are still alive when he's writing 1 Corinthians. Some have fallen asleep. Some have died. After that, he was seen by James and then by all the apostles. And then last of all, he was seen by me and also the one born out of due time. Now, there were those that someone would say, well, it's no surprise that the apostles would say Jesus was resurrected from the dead. They are the closest ones to him and they're the ones that's out speaking about it. Oh, but it wasn't just the apostles. It was crowds, like 500 people at one time. Were they all hallucinating the very same thing? No. They were literally seeing the resurrected Lord. And the time this was written, over half of them were still alive that people could go around and say, did you really see the resurrected Jesus of Nazareth? Yes. I was in a huge audience. We all saw him. And then when did Saul, later called Paul, when did he see Jesus? When did he come to know the resurrected Lord as the Lord? It wasn't when he was friendly toward Jesus. Remember, it was when he was on the road to Damascus. It's when he was persecuting people that believed in Jesus. Listen, it wasn't one on Jesus' side that said, I now believe that there's a resurrected Lord. I've talked to him. If Jesus had not been resurrected, Saul would have never talked to him on the road to Damascus. It was there that his intellect and his heart His understanding and his love for the Lord changed. He talked to the resurrected Lord. And now he's able to say, listen, I'm one of the witnesses. I've seen the resurrected Lord. And he probably would have seen the resurrected Lord even through visions that would have taken place after that. So we've got evidence of the resurrection that no man can really take history and deny the fact that Jesus lived and then take the historical facts that he died and that he was resurrected. The evidence is just all around us. Now notice the second point, and that is the importance of the resurrection. He's going to lay out what we mentioned this morning, that question that some of them were asking of whether or not there was even a resurrection. See there in 12, now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how does some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And if there is no resurrection of the dead, and he's going to lay out about 10 things here, a couple of them are redundant, but he's going to lay out about 10 things to say, If there is no resurrection of the dead, in other words, you have this in your mind, in other words, he's saying, if there's no resurrection, we've got to deal with these facts. So what are they? Number one, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Start hunting the tombs. Don't you know that the Jews did hunt the tombs? Don't you know they wanted to find the bones of Jesus Christ so that they could bring them out and say, here he is. We told you he wasn't the Messiah. They never found the bones because Jesus did rise from the dead. But if there's no resurrection, talking about in general, if there's no resurrection, then Jesus has to still be in the grave. Number two, and if Christ, verse 14, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. The apostles and preachers for the last 2,000 years, Bible class teachers, mothers and fathers that teach their children about the resurrected Lord, boys and girls that believe in the resurrected Lord, All of that teaching and preaching is a lie. 
if there is no resurrection. And that would lead to our faith also. The third thing is also empty as we studied this morning. In verse 15, we see a fourth thing. And yes, we are found false witnesses of God. In other words, we don't need to go around and tell people there's a resurrected Lord if there's no resurrection. Because we have testified of God that He has raised up Christ, whom, here's a fifth one, He did not raise up. In fact, the dead do not rise. So is Jesus alive or not? That's the question. And we come to the sixth one in 16. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. We see it again in 17. If Christ is not risen, we see it again. Your faith is futile. Futility has to do not only with emptiness, but depravity as it relates to moral issues like a compass. You see what happens? And, and, and I don't know if this kind of challenges your thinking to make this link, but I said it this morning and I want to say it again. We lose our moral compass whenever we do not believe in a resurrected Lord. And at first glance, you may say, I don't see how that happens. It happens. And so not only do we lose faith, we have a futile faith. It is morally deprived. depraved. It is empty. It is worthless. But it doesn't stop there. In verse 17, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You remember why Christ died. He carried our sins to die on the cross because the punishment for sin is death. His death was a substitution that would only prove to be a viable substitution for our death if two things take place. If he went to the cross as a perfect sacrifice and if he's resurrected to prove that he has power over the dead. Listen, if Jesus would have been perfect but God could not have raised him from the dead... There would be no hope for us. There would be no hope. We would all die in our sins. He was that perfect sacrifice that overcame the grave. And so therefore, we can talk about our theme this month of victory because there is a resurrection by the power of God and Christ to be raised from the dead. In verse 18, we see another one. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now, remember the phraseology that we're going through here? It's if there is no resurrection is what these verses are talking about. So if there's no resurrection, those that have gone to sleep, that's, that's the way he continues to talk throughout 1 Corinthians for those that have already died, those that have already passed away, those that are already asleep, he says, they're perishing. In other words, they will experience condemnation if there is no resurrection. There's no hope for them to be spared of their sins. And then finally, in verse 19, we see the tenth of the importance of the resurrection. And that is, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. Why are you here? If you're here because you think this is a great social place to be, I don't know how many times in my ministry, but it wouldn't fit on one or two hands. I've had individuals that tell me, and I'm sure they mean well, but they've missed the mark completely, and hopefully they stick around long enough to learn that, and it's just a step in their journey towards the Lord. But so many times I've been told, well, you know, my children have just gotten to the age, and I realize I do not want them being bombarded by all the things of the world and all the worldly people, and I just wanted to find a place that they would be in a better environment, so I decided to start coming to church. Well, I'm glad someone started coming to church, but friends, if the only reason that we're here 
And the only reason that we think of a relationship with God is for earthly benefits. According to God, we are the most pitiful or pitiful people on this earth. Christianity costs too much if it doesn't have a payoff beyond this earth. And if you say, my Christianity doesn't cost me much, you're not living the Christian life. Christianity costs too much if there's not a payoff beyond this life. I encourage you, if you've not found that life that is of great sacrifice, wholly giving your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength to God, you will love the life. Notice the emphasis on life that you find with God because that life will take you into eternity. And so Paul looks at that kind of life and he says, if there's not a resurrection, I'm in the wrong ball game because I'm suffering a whole lot for a cause if there's nothing beyond this. We'll get to that even a little bit more. So in 20, we have a huge contrast. Notice on the screen, I said huge. We have a big contrast in 20. He's been saying there is no resurrection. These things are true. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so for all of these verses, he's been saying, okay, there's no resurrection. There's no resurrection. All these terrible things are happening. But that's not true. There is a resurrection. Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. First doesn't necessarily mean first fruits. Doesn't necessarily mean first in order. It's first in priority. It's first in greatness. In other words, because he was resurrected from the dead, he paid the price for all so that all could be resurrected from the dead. And so in that sense, he is the first fruits of the resurrection. With that in mind, I'd like for us to look at John 5, 28 and 29. We'll make this point very quick and go right back to 1 Corinthians 15. Do not marvel. What I want you to see in this is that all of us are going to be raised from the dead, but the question is, are we going to be raised in life or are we going to be raised in condemnation? Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come forth. Those who have done good, to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Is there a resurrection? According to God, over and over and over. That's the theme that runs throughout the Scriptures. Sin has separated us from God and left us in condemnation. Jesus Christ came to this earth to give us life and to give us life abundant. In other words, now, We can have that same life, eternal life, that He has. He offers it to us. Now we go back and we look at a sequence here in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at 20. We just read 20. We'll read it again. I'd like for you to notice the order of some things here as we think about the sequence of of the resurrection. In verse 20, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Who came to this earth first? Adam. 
What did Adam do? Adam and Eve introduced us sin. And what did sin do? The soul that sins, it shall die. It separated us from God. It brought physical death. It, it brought spiritual death. And then, when did Jesus come to this earth? After Adam. And he came to this earth as a man, flesh and blood. And what did he do? He brought life. He brought redemption. He showed us physical death. And he showed us physical resurrection. He showed us that perfect life and that perfect sacrifice. And so we see the order here. That first sin was brought in and then the solution to that sin was brought in. As we continue to read about that last day, look in verse 23. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, we've already talked about that. Afterwards, see the order? Christ was resurrected and afterwards those who are in Christ at his coming. So when Jesus comes again, that's going to be the final day of resurrection. And who's going to be raised first? Those who were Christ at His coming. Now, if you want to study that more in depth, you can read 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, beginning at verse 13 to the end, and you'll see that those who were in Christ but dead, they will be raised first. And then those who are in Christ that's still alive will be raised next. And then all will be raised. And you go to Matthew, the 25th chapter, and you get a picture of the day of judgment where everyone that's ever lived will be there. And he'll have a separation. Those that are the saved will be on the right side. And those that are lost will be on the, the left side. And we see that he's going to deliver those to the Father. Well, we can read that here. Let's continue reading about this delivery to the Father. Verse 24. We're looking at a sequence here of order. You see what he's describing in 24 is the end of times. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom, see we're going to be delivered if we're part of the kingdom, to God the Father. And he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. And we continue reading about the last enemy in 26. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Now pause there for a moment. Jesus is going to destroy death. But have you thought about how actually death will be destroyed when everybody who has ever died is going to be resurrected? Death has no more power. Everyone who is dead is now alive. Death, thou shalt die. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Let's consider the value of the resurrection as we go to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter and verse 29. There's a passage here that you could probably find 40 different suggestions of what this might be. I'll give you a suggestion of what I believe it might be. He says in 29, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? There must have been a practice. Just as even here in America, there's a large religious group that has a practice of baptizing for the dead. They, they research genealogy. They find people in their family. They've lived a wicked life and they go through certain channels uh, to become eligible to be baptized. They literally winter into water and they will be baptized on behalf of a dead relative to save their soul from condemnation. Nowhere in the Bible do we read that that is possible. But instead, we do read a baptism of the dead here, and we do not see it being spoken of in a favorable sense. Now, we also see that it's really not the topic here. What he's doing is, is like if you're uh, trying to study with someone or debate someone, you, you try to see their logic, and then you see holes in the logic, and to help them learn, you point out those holes in the logic. 
And so what he's saying is, isn't it interesting that some of you are saying that there's no resurrection, but you're also at the same time practicing a baptism for the dead. You can imagine Paul just saying that and letting them think on it. How does that make sense? If there's no such thing as a resurrection, why are you concerned about baptizing others for deceased loved ones? So he lays that out and Paul just leaves it. He puts it out that simple. But the next point, we know exactly what Paul's talking about and it's powerful. What's the resurrection worth? When we think of the value of it, this is how it changed Paul's life. Verse 30. Now, remember what he's saying here. If you don't believe that there's a resurrection, or if there's not a resurrection, Paul's going to say, I must really be messing up here. Why? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus... What advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You see what Paul's saying? He reveals something to us here that's not revealed anywhere else in the Scripture. We don't even know about the beast that he fought in Ephesus. And what that tells us, out of the many, many times of him being persecuted and tortured, there were probably a lot of other horrific times that he was persecuted and tortured that we don't even know about. And he uses the same language that he uses back in 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, where he talks about his love for the Lord and his faith. He is willing to deliver himself to death. And so that's what he's saying here. He says, I stand in jeopardy every hour. I put my life on the line for the Lord every day. Paul could have with his body, he could have dropped his shirt and he could have showed you all the scars on his body. And everybody here would say, he really does. He really does put his life on the line for the Lord every day. And Paul says, okay, you know I do. Now, if I put my life on the line every day for the Lord and there's nothing beyond this earth, I'm messing up. What I need to do is I need to just eat, drink, and be merry if there's nothing beyond because all I've got to live it up for is this earth. Now, that's important to note that principle because that principle is true. Now, we're back to that morality People that do not live for a resurrected Lord usually live an immoral life, at least in some degree, in some ways. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. In verse 33, well, we're there. Looking for 33. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. We've got these people in in, in, um, Corinth that are saying there's no resurrection. And at the same time, they're living by that. Hey, today we live, tomorrow we die. There's nothing on the other side. Let's live however we want to live. And Paul says, those people, don't run with them. Now you'll say, oh, they won't, they won't influence me. I'll influence them. And so how does he begin that verse? I want to make sure everybody here knows the Word of God on this. How does God begin the verse? God begins with, don't be deceived. You're going to think you can get by with this one. And God's saying, you won't. You will not get by on this one. You run with people that do not believe in the resurrected Lord 
They have a different standard in life because their home is on earth. And for Christians, our home is in heaven. And it creates a different standard. And this one is very immoral. And that one is very spiritual. And so he says in 34, he's trying to wake us up spiritually. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. In other words, these are people in their congregation. that don't have the knowledge of God. They don't have the knowledge of the resurrection. And he says, that's a shame. It's our responsibility to make sure that God's word is always exalted and that God's word is always lived. So now let's think of the body of the resurrection and we'll try to go through this quickly and we should be able to end just almost on time here. Let's look. 1 Corinthians 15, 35. Think about this about the body. He says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up and what body do they come? You see there he's saying, I know dust is what the body ends up becoming. We're from dust, we go back to dust, how is that body going to be raised? And he says, 36, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases to each seed his own body. Now, unless you're a specialist in horticulture, I could grab some seeds and, and I could put them in your hand without the package. And I could say, hey, what are these seeds? You probably wouldn't know if it's a marigold or if it's a turnip or, you know, you, you, you probably wouldn't know. What if I put a seed in, in, in your hand and you say, oh, maybe this is some kind of weed. You know, put it in the ground a few weeks later, a little weed grows and no, 400 years later, a redwood is there. You say, wow, just, just a little difference in seed, but yet what is produced? There's such a great difference. And so somebody looks at the topic of the resurrection and says, I know what body goes into the ground. I can't believe that there's going to be a body that rises. And Paul, speaking on behalf of God, says you're being foolish. You're not looking at the nature that God has already created. It's not the same body that's coming out that has been sown. And when you say it's dead and it can't be alive again, you look at the seed and it appears to have death all over it and through it, but the reality is there's a germ of life in it. Just like when we look at our physical body, it appears to be dead, but there's a soul that is not dead. And so he's laying out these instructions. And so then, just in case someone would limit God's power to create another body and another glory for that body, notice these verses in 39 and following. All flesh is not the same flesh. In other words, can God create different flesh? Sure, he created men and flesh of animals and fish and birds and celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. And then he, he even differed and varied in glory. For example, he created the glory of the celestial, then the glory of the terrestrial. And then also, if we want to look at the outer space, he created the glory of the sun and then the glory of the moon and then the glory of the stars. And then even stars differ from one another. How different is a fish from an eagle from a buffalo, from, from a man or a woman. And, and you look at that and say, those bodies are so different. Exactly. And then you say, well, well, the body that's going to be resurrected is so much more glorious than the body that is going into the grave. Exactly. God's never had a problem with creating different kinds of bodies and different glories, if you will, to those bodies, different brilliance. And, and so it is. He literally here is using what God has already done in nature to illustrate. It's not exactly the same, 
but it's to illustrate God's power of the resurrection that is to come. And so we see four characteristics of this body beginning in verse 42. Notice it's going to be resurrected from the dead and it was sown in corruption. And what's this body going to rise in? In corruption. It's sown in dishonor and it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown in a natural body. It's raised in a spiritual body. So we see this in corruption. When this body's raised, this new body... When it's raised, it's not going to grow old. It's not going to decay. It's not going to grow weak. It's going to be glorious, much glory, much more glorious than the body that we experience here. It's going to be a, a body of power. We don't know what that means, but it's not going to be frail. It's going to be strong and probably beyond our imagination in glory and in power. And also we see that it's not going to be a physical body. It's going to be a spiritual body that is going to be raised. And so we continue as we think about the heavenly body that we are going to be given in 45, we see a comparison here to the fleshly man and the spiritual man. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first. In other words, Adam came first, but then the natural. And afterwards, the spiritual The first man was of the earth. Remember, Adam was formed of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Adam and then Christ came to this earth. You remember like, for example, in Ephesians, the second chapter in verse 10, it talks about Christ making us again. He's not talking about there the physical. He's talking about the spiritual creation that he makes us, saving us, giving us a heavenly purpose for good works and etc. That's what's being referred to here in, in 1 Corinthians 15 and 48. Now, I, I know in a Bible class here, about a, within the last year, we've studied through Ephesians. And if you've studied through Ephesians and you noticed how Paul uses the word heavenly, A lot of times people immediately think about heaven. It's not used as heaven. This is an example of this here, and we don't have time to develop it, but if you remember that study or or you want to dig deeper into that, this is an example of it here. 1 Corinthians 15, 48. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust, as is the heavenly man. So also are those who are heavenly. Hopefully everybody in this room that we are heavenly. In other words, we've been baptized into Christ and now we live a life that is sanctified, set apart from the world and we are already participating in some measure, in some degree, in many of the heavenly blessings. Now the fullness of those blessings are yet to come, but yet we're not in the world anymore. We're living in that sense a heavenly life. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. It's a beautiful, beautiful teaching there. For time's sake, we'll go right to verse 50 and we'll see the moment of the resurrection. Now this I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That's the motto for the nursery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And now... Notice, it's going to happen in a moment here. The moment of resurrection. In a moment. How quick? In a twinkling of an eye. The last trumpet. That's the herald. Nobody can miss this trumpet. Nobody will miss the second coming of Jesus. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality 
And now we see the victory. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, you don't have any power anymore. What or who slew death? When Jesus Christ was resurrected, He brought the the blow to death. And when He comes again, and it's that final resurrection, He gives the final blow to death. Death will be swallowed up in all being made alive again. And so then, death, where's your sting? Or Hades, where's your victory? There's not going to be a victory for those. The victory is for all those that conquer those because of verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're pilgrims. Our home is over there. Our home isn't here. We're pilgrims. Our investment is over there. Our investment is not here. We give to store gifts up there. Our heart, our heart is already over there. So many people we love, they're already on the other side. And the God, that along with Thomas, we could cry out, my Lord and my God. He's over there. Everything that is good and perfect and powerful and glorious, it's over there. And all we do here is join up with men like Paul and make investments for over there. And that's why after 57 verses of the resurrection, at first glance it would sound like verse 58 is a change of topic. But it's not. It's the summary of now that I have my home, my heart, and my love over there. Verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren... We're going to be steadfast in our faith for over there. We're going to be immovable in our journey as we move toward our Lord. We're going to always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. In other words, every day becomes an investment for the other side. If you're not real competitive... It may not be a big deal if I say, don't lose. But tonight, I'm talking about your soul. I'm talking about your eternity. Don't lose. This is one that, spiritually speaking, we can't afford to lose. We don't get a redo. We don't get a second try. We don't get a, hey, nobody's looking, just try again. We walk through this life once. And we either live for the other side and for our Lord and for eternity. Or we lose.
we lose everything. Or we can be victorious. Victorious through our Lord Jesus Christ. Tonight, where's your heart? Where's your investment? Where's your life? And if it's not where it needs to be, let's make sure we all leave here tonight immersed into victory. Ready to pull up the tent pegs. Ready to step over whenever the Lord calls us home. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand as we sing.